Our guest today is such a wonderfully gracious guy. He has a very successful YouTube channel called Self Sufficient Me and it's wonderfully informative and entertaining about all things gardening and being self-sufficient. Although a successful channel now, it did take a long struggle to get it there and we hear the story and that journey from Mark. Prior to his YouTube success, he had a very rewarding career in the army. However, it did include a few minor setbacks, one of which was an on-the-job accident, which nearly resulted in him losing his life. Please welcome Mark Valencia. Welcome to One Moment Please, the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success, and you take a moment to tune in to bring on the inspiration. doing this yeah no worries um i love your channel that's why i wanted to have you on well thank you i've been watching it for years to the point where i actually one of the first videos i watched was when you were standing in front of your um garage with uh -huh. your trailer you were doing something with your trailer and you were oh, saying yeah, yeah. i don't know whether or not i can continue doing this and i was like oh, exactly that's such a raw honest video and i was like i just have to keep watching this guy like you're fascinating yeah, um, yeah, that was one. That was one time that uh, I was really seriously considering giving it away, um, and I'm glad I didn't. But gee, I was close because, you know, you know, you get crossroads in life, and that was a crossroad there. Thinking maybe I need to concentrate on something else. Is this uh, content creation thing a reality, or is it a pipe dream? And uh, you know, you've got to do what's best for your family and. Perhaps I needed to change direction, but I decided to stick at it. And yeah, I'm glad I did. What was the turning point? Well, um, I don't know. It's, I suppose I, I, I decided just to keep a hand in. Um, I did, did follow other options at that point. Um, the, the, the simple reason was I wasn't making any money at all practically out of it. And uh, I don't think I even had 10,000 subscribers at that stage. And mm. I, I'd been toiling for several years, uh, working very hard and long hours to try to gain some traction in the content creation world in my niche. And uh, I just felt frustrated. And you, you know, there was a point there that uh, the boys were starting to get older and, you know, you've got to start thinking once they get a little bit more independent and they don't need me to be around as much, I can just drop them at school, pick them up, and they can be pretty much autonomous after that. Well, then there's no excuse for me not to get back into the workforce. And, and you know, it would be logical to at least earn a little bit of extra money on the side um, while I'm doing the home dad stuff. So I was considering that, but then um, I got a really lucky break where one of my videos got picked up. I started experimenting on YouTube and I started getting a little more loose. Uh, my, my earlier videos were, and, and I still look back even at a video I'd done a week ago and I, I feel a bit cringy, but um, my early stuff was just awful, trying to get used to the camera 
and trying to get used to what people or find out what people would like to know and how to present that information. And uh, anyway, I, I did. I got a bit loose and I did a, a, a video on growing lemons and this lemon tree had literally a ton of fruit on it. This was a Maya lemon. It was growing well. And I thought, how did I get it to this stage? I wonder if people would be interested to know just uh, like five top tips on how I actually got this up. I'm not, not exactly how to grow a lemon tree, but how did I get it to this stage and what worked? And I thought, I'll just do it. And uh, I did it pretty much off the cuff, wrote a few notes, and I, uh, I put it up there. And I had a bit of fun with it. You know, I, I threw in a bit of humor. And um, I, I actually, the, probably the most, the most um, risky thing for me was just the title was uh, how to grow a ton of lemons and I didn't write a big description I was over that I thought you know what I'm sick of trying my best I just want to get a bit loose and and just write a short description it was about a sentence long this video is about how to grow a ton of lemons and then I just threw it on YouTube and I didn't think about it much and uh, about three or four months later it blew up it just went nuts I looked at my stats I got a heap of sms's and and dings on my phone and I realized that something was going on and I looked back through the through the stats and I'd be, I'd gained a thousand subscribers in one day which was astronomical for me and that video just got shared around and picked up by YouTube people enjoyed it and from then on I, I stuck in you know I carved into that vein of growing a ton and getting a little bit more loose with my videos and enjoying it a lot more. And I think that, yeah, that was the start of it. Why do you find your most recent one cringy? Was that the one where you were doing the corn, the dehusker? No, I, every, every video, just about every video I do, there's faults with it that I wish I could have picked up earlier or that I could have done better. And I don't like watching myself on TV or on camera or, or played back. I hate it. I don't like my voice. I don't like anything about it. But Really? Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting it's, medium to go into then if you don't like seeing yourself or don't like your voice. I mean, it, it's saying that I hate my voice too, but yeah, well, <laughs> well you've got a lovely voice. voice. Well, I can tell oh, you, you've got a very nice voice and a good voice for radio and podcasting too. Well, I hope so. Yeah. But then I suppose what I'm doing is I'm, I'm doing a video and I'm, I'm working on it from a, a pre-production type thing. I'm doing it and then I'm editing myself over and over and I'm listening yeah. to myself all day for hours and it just gets on my nerves. Uh, I'm glad I don't have a twin brother, I can tell you that. <laughs> but <laughs> How long does it take you to do an episode from shooting it to editing it? Oh, look, that depends on the type of content it is. If it's a standard video that I'm in my garden and I want to show people a certain, or just say a walk around, um, well, that that's pretty easy content to do. You can just shoot and get some different angles in and get a bit of B-roll going. And I can I can do a video like that in about 12 hours from where to go. But if I'm doing a, a specific project, it can take technically, you know, months because like, like my video, the best video I've done so far is what happens when you uh, bury kitchen scraps in the garden. And Yeah, I've seen that take off. That video, you know, it didn't take a lot to put together, but overall it took 
several months, if not a few years, um, of you know placing things in the garden and digging them back up again. And so from that sense, you know, you've got to keep an eye on it. Like I've got a video that'll be coming up uh, in, a, in another couple of months and that's burying duck eggs underneath a tomato plant. I think mm. I, I buried 10 or, or 11 duck eggs underneath a tomato plant. And uh, that'll be a video where it's a, it's a before and after. It's a how did this grow compared to exactly the same plant next to it that didn't have any of that. Um, but say on average it does take quite a bit of time, longer than it used to take me because the the more I, I learn and I'm always learning, and that's another thing that I find, you know, cringy about my work is that I'm always learning and getting better and mm. I always strive to improve. And so when you look back at your other work, you think oh, that, that cut could have been much better. That sound wasn't as good as it should have been. And so you, you are your, your worst critic. And I think that is healthy, um, and uh, you know you're learning all the time. Uh, yeah. Your videos seem to be very structured compared to other um, YouTubers out there that do sort of the self-sufficiency lifestyle. I'm, and I'm more referring to people like Justin Rhodes and Luminar Acres, where they're more walking around vlogging really with yeah. um, while they're doing their chores whereas you're a lot more structured was there a conscious decision to be more structured or is that just your preference in regards to watching videos so you've gone with that yeah the majority of my videos now are more structured because um, it might be me and my personality and uh, you know the way way I am it works better for me uh, because I, I did try the vlogging thing and the, the cutting of the videos, I still do that occasionally and, and throw in those vlogging style videos, but they never do very well. And so when they don't do very well, um, over time you see that pattern and you want to replicate what does do well. And I don't mean you go chasing the big viral videos. Like um, I am kind of replicating the buried kitchen scraps in the garden video because that does work and that's a smart thing for most content creators to do is to get into a niche whether it's video writing or whatever and if you find something that does work you should exploit it but you shouldn't overdo it either because then you look you, you know you, you, your your fan base or your reader base starts to get sick of it and uh, starts to see through it as you're trying to exploit that so you have to little you know be a little bit careful and uh, and not sort of go trying to run for the clicks or run for the, the the views and and still bring value to what you're doing. It took me a while to do the berry fish head under a tomato plant. I had some uh, I saw some of the people on YouTube. I mentioned it in the video uh, that particular method of burying fish heads, and it hadn't been really done much on YouTube before. And I noted that a few people actually ran with that video, but they didn't. They didn't do the full thing. They just quickly threw some fish heads underneath a tomato plant, and uh, they thought that that would be great. And it did get a few views, but it didn't run very well. Um, so if you're too quick to try to jump on something that is popular and you mess it up, it just makes you look like you're desperate. So uh, I I took a longer time and planned that video as a sequel sort of thing to my buried kitchen scraps 
and it went very well. And uh, because I planned it from where to go and I structured it properly. Um, Vlogging has its place and it's very successful for some creators. But for me, for whatever reasons, it just doesn't work as well. And you need to run with what does work. Otherwise, you know, you're starting to tread water. And yeah, that's the whole point about um, trying to do the best you can and improve is by being awake to that type of stuff and understanding where your failures are and what's not working and what is and then trying to give your fan base or your subscriber base exactly what they want and occasionally you go out of that sphere to experiment which is healthy but most of the time you should really stick with what they are enjoying and think of your audience not you know, always what you want to do because that type of thing is fine for big mega stars like Casey Neistat. They could do whatever they want. They got millions. They got a, a set audience that already really love them. But for the rest of us, uh, you know, you, you can't just do whatever you want or or go away from your niche. Talk too much about say politics when my stick is gardening. Um, then people start to drop off and they won't come back. What came first, the self-sufficiency or had you already sort of set that up at home and then say, okay, I'm going to make a YouTube to try and get income from this or did you sort of buy the property and do it hand in hand? Yeah, the, it was first was survival. First was trying to get our life back together. Nina and I, Nina's my wife, we were both in the military. We were, I was a squadron sergeant major, so in a fairly high position, and in a very highly intensive type of job, I had about 130 soldiers that I trained and kept fit and uh, uh, disciplined. So that was my main role as a as a sergeant major in a in a unit. And uh, my wife was a a medical warrant officer. She ran a medical centre at Anogra, and she was responsible for the health and welfare and organising that of over 7,000 people. So we both had fairly highly intensive jobs and two young boys and uh, it wasn't working out. We had good money, you know, it was, it was nice, nice money, easy to pay for the mortgage, but it was, we were unhappy. We were both dropping the kids off at dark um, in the morning at five at childcare and then both getting home competing for who's gonna cook dinner Who's going to do the housework? Who hasn't paid that bill? Um, who's going to even mow the bloody lawn? Because both of us were knackered and the kids were unhappy. They hardly saw their parents. And one day, I can tell you, I've told this story several times. We were at the front gate going out at five in the morning as usual. And I looked at Nina and I said, look, we just can't keep doing this. We had a bit of a fight before. And I said, we just can't keep doing this. Uh, one of us has to drop out of the workforce. I don't care about the money anymore. Let's let's just try to make life easier and have one foot on the ground. And she looked at me and she goes, well, it's not going to be me. <laughs> mm. I love so, it. Yeah, I went, oh, <laughs> well, you're the mum. Uh, I, I, okay. Oh, Mark, that's a very <laughs> old-fashioned mentality. <laughs> um yeah, but uh, I was oh, more tongue-in-cheek, but uh, I got it. I got it. No worries. 
because she she was really and keen to keep her career going, not necessarily to stay in the army, but she had a plan for herself, and which has worked out really well. She she um uh, yeah left the army a little little short. I mean a little bit after me, so um, we still had that continuity. But um, now she. When did you leave? Uh, I left in two thousand and eight, and okay. Nina left uh, about a year after. Uh, but she kept in the army reserves, worked as a Red Cross nurse, um, and uh, was you know juggling two jobs there. She's a very busy woman, and uh, uh, she was yeah works very hard. And I kept the home, you know, the homestead going, and to keep my keep. I started growing as much veg as possible. And we planned this. So it wasn't out of the blue. We moved from Upper Kedron in, in the inner city suburb of Brisbane. We moved to Caboolture, an outer suburb, bought land and a house that was much cheaper than you would on the fringes of Brisbane um, be, because mm. of the proximity away. And Nina had to travel into work then. Um, but so did I for that first two years. We, we, we moved out in 2006. And so I didn't get out of the army until 2008. So I travelled, you know, an hour into into work and back. But we already had this place, and then the dream was to, if we had to, um, was to use this to get food from. And uh, once I dropped out, I had more time, of course, and that was the idea. Let's save on groceries. Um, not only have one foot on the ground and ha- have someone to look after the kids and have dinner on the table for when Nina got home, but let's make as much of the food we can and save money off our grocery bill because that's our biggest bill. And, yeah, mm-hmm. it worked. And from there was the – that's where it all went weird and people started asking me, how did I grow that? Boy, this tastes good. How did you make that jam? And I just kept saying, you know, the same thing over at barbecues. And then, again, this was Nina's idea as well. She said – you know, you should get a website and then put all your recipes or stuff on there and then you can refer that to people so I don't have to keep hearing this same story over and over. And uh, that turned out to be a really good idea. So I started a website. People started following me on that and I started thinking, well, maybe if people are interested in what I'm writing, I I could maybe try to do something on YouTube. In my mind, I was an ex-recruit instructor you know, top of the tops there at that time, did the um, army recruiting course and it was a very vigorous course and I was recruit instructor for three years and then a, a recruit instructor instructor. Uh, so I had the skills to, to teach and instruct, but then I got in front of that camera thinking that I was, you know, Mr. Shitot and uh, I just froze and I found it very difficult to overcome looking at a camera lens and trying to vision people on the other side of it. And it took me yeah, many months to get over that and start to feel a little bit normal as I was talking. Because as a recruit instructor, you would have been, and, and then obviously going on to the instructor instructor, you would have been used to yelling at people <laughs> instructions, yes. I would imagine. I have this vision of... of of that sort of a role with, you know, it hundreds is. of pe- <laughs> hundreds yeah. of people in front of you that you're yelling at, telling them to do push-ups and stuff. <laughs> you're exactly right. It was a lot like that. I don't know if it's the same now, but uh, yeah, you did have to have a big voice on you. That was uh, that was helpful as a recruit instructor. 
but uh, I'd like to think that my days, I was I was an educator and and a lot better than I wasn't a screamer. Put it that way. I did have a loud voice on the drill square, which you have to, but yeah. I didn't berate people. You know, I didn't. I wasn't that type of of guy. I wasn't those tip. You know, stereotypical sergeants you see on on the shows on TV or anything like that. Um, many of us weren't, but uh, yeah. Yeah, it was an excellent career I had in the military, 21 years. Uh, I loved every bit of it. I had some really good times. Uh, one of my memorable, memorable times was two years up in Cape York Peninsula as part of civilian liaison working with Aboriginal communities up there and uh, pastoral owners. I think, looking back at it, whenever I think of my 21 years, I, I think of that. those two years was some of my best. I've never been up that far north to Cape York. It's from oh. what I understand, it's almost like a completely different country. With Certainly the, is. It's Certainly so tropical is. and yeah. yeah. But oh, what was it that you loved so much about it? Well, just um, interacting with the indigenous people up there was was something that I hadn't done much of before, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, it just you know. It, it it opens your broadens your horizons um you know going fishing with them finding well one of the tasks we had was mapping sacred sites we weren't allowed to go in on any of those sacred sites but we we're allowed to stand on the outside have a look in map them so that the army wouldn't come through and uh yeah that was that was just fabulous some of these places were were incredible we went to once um an old place called um, Old Man's Plains. This is up in the Leichhardt River region. Of, oh, yeah, 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 that's right, around there. And, yeah, the guys took us out. It took us about two hours to get there um, and a couple of Aboriginal scouts. And there was just really thick scrub. We got as far as we could by vehicle. Then we had to walk and we had no idea where we were going. We were just following these scouts and we eventually, we had a GPS, we eventually got through this thicket and then it opened up to this football field. It looked like a football field of just beautiful foot-high grass. And uh, in the middle of all this tree, there was like a spaceship had landed there and burnt everything and nothing else ever grew. Um, And that was a a sacred site that we mapped and made sure the army didn't go through um, subsequently on exercise. How amazing. Yeah. How amazing that you got that little... Glimpse yes, into that, that glimpse. sort of, and 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 the and the guide was a lovely young fellow. I can't remember his name, but he's he's held on to me, and he said, "Don't step one foot further into this area, or you could be um, you could die." And then he told me of a story of a of a white fella who um, was a pastoral owner who said, look, I don't believe in that superstitious stuff. And this is going back decades. And he said, mm-hmm. uh, they all know this story. And he went, he rode his horse in there. And then within 10 hours, he had, he had died of an appendicitis. So, uh, wow. yeah, yeah. And those experiences uh, were just, I, I really loved about my military career. But it was time that, that we had to make a move because of family reasons. And also, I wasn't. Um, physically as good as I, I could have been um, towards the end of my career because I had a, a very serious parachuting accident and uh, nearly lost my arm and killed myself, talking about death, <laughs> macabrely. Oh 
uh, when I crumped what in. What happened? Oh, See, I've jumped... never gone parachuting because I'm scared that, oh, I'm scared of heights and I just oh. think that it's a silly thing to do if I'm scared of heights. But I do. Oh. I, I think you're right. I think um, jumping out of a perfectly good aircraft is a stupid thing to do and I don't think I'll ever <laughs> do it again. <laughs> Probably not after your experience. Were you jumping as a <clears throat> civilian or with the military? No, no, with the military. I was training. I was in a parachuting unit down in Sydney and it was part mm-hmm. of my training. We were, we were training to go to East Timor. Eventually, mm-hmm. I still ended up going there, but, uh, um, but yeah, not until, uh, uh, yeah, not until the second time years later. But um, no, I was, we was in Narandra and I jumped out as usual, but as I was going to jump out, the young fella in front of me, I was a sergeant at the time, he was only 18, uh, the young guy, he balked at the door. And I went up on my tippy toes and I had all my combat gear on and a weapon. So we're very heavy. And uh, because I went on my tippy toes, the guys behind me, there's about 10. They all kept going because you just have to go one out and the other when you've got a green light. And uh, I tried to avoid him and I tumbled over the top of him. And as I did that, my static line, which is attached to the plane that pulls your chute open, it wrapped around my right wrist and it threw me up against the plane um, or in a split second, I hit the door or something, and it shattered my arm into several pieces, like a crumble bar, oh, and uh, pulled me back, ripped the shoulder from the top of my chest. Uh, the, the right pec was torn, and it was an open fracture, so there was a lot of claret flying around. Um, but it actually, because the arm went like jelly, it, it, it actually got loose and didn't tear completely off, and I uh, found oh, myself... God. Yeah, I found myself flying um, with uh, claret squirting out everywhere, trying to control my parachute with one hand. And uh, I wasn't doing a very good job. And there was guys flying towards me going, pull away, pull away. And that's that's the, the, the catch cry when someone's coming too close to you. And I couldn't move. I was sort of dead, you know, dead. But I was feeling fuzzy, loss of blood. Um, but I was able to get to the ground um, somehow, I landed pretty bad and I actually hit the airstrip, which busted my ankles and coccyx because um, it was fairly hard oh, landing. <laughs> yeah. uh, and uh, then, cut a long story short, the ambulance came, but it broke down and they had to oh, call God, another ambulance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the story gets worse. Uh, the ambulance came, it broke down, they took me to Narandra the hospital said, crikey, his injuries are too bad. We can't accept him. Take him to Wagga. So they had to then take me to Wagga. Got to Wagga. They stabilised me there. Um, and uh, then they they took me to Sydney. And that's where they did all this fancy surgery. Took muscle, a muscle uh, from my left latissimus, a whole muscle they cut from my left side. They transplanted it to where my forearm used to be because I lost that, I lost that muscle. Um, and then... Yeah, about 12 months of therapy, I got my hand working again and now I play tennis. So it's all good. God. Yeah. What's your latissimus? What was that muscle? And the latissimus dorsi, the, the left lat. You know, when you, when you oh, see okay, yeah. bodybuilders do the lat spread and the wings on the either right side. Right in my wheelhouse, Mark. Yeah. No, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I know what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> It's been a long time since I've entered a gym, Mark, but that's fine. I know what you mean. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, that one. You you would have seen you would have seen those terribly big built guys. Yeah, that's the wing yeah. spread. The left side they cut that fully out. They took a big skin graft from my left thigh as well and placed that over that muscle. And luckily it took and uh, yeah. But there's one other thing that's interesting. My mother, my auntie, she's uh, she runs a an aircraft business, a flying school in Toowoomba, and um, she chartered. Well, one of her planes basically said, "Mum, no worries." To my mother, I'll fly because obviously she was very concerned because it was touch and go for a while. So immediately after they got notified of my accident, they chartered a a plane, a small aircraft, to fly all the way from Toowoomba to Wagga Wagga. Mm. And when they when they were going to touch down, the wheel wouldn't come down, so they had to do an emergency landing. And to do an emergency landing, they had to get my mother, the pilot asked, because she was the only passenger on the plane, she had to crawl on her stomach and manually wind down the wheel. Oh, God. How would your mum at this stage? Um, what? Uh, she would have been about 50-something. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, me. Yeah, and uh, wind that wheel down manually. So we nearly had double tragedy. Lucky you didn't yeah. step inside the sacred circle. You didn't know anything would have, could have happened. Could you imagine that? Yeah. Well, I could have accounted it to oh that if goodness. I did. Yeah. But were uh, you with Nina yeah, at yeah, this stage? So, yeah, I was. I was. Uh, we were girl, you know, girlfriend, boyfriend. Uh, she was working in Brisbane. I was in Sydney, and uh, uh, she she then took a bit of extra leave to come and see me. And when uh, when I was recovering. She, this is another, I mean, you might find this interesting, I do. When I was recovering, um, it was about the second time she was able to come and see me. She did She did take a fair bit of leave to look after me and so did my sister. My sister came right. from South Africa all the way over to take tag teams through my recovery because I was in mm. a pretty bad way. And uh, so the family did sort of tag teams looking after me um, through That's hospital and home. I got a staphylococcal infection and... So oh, I nearly fuck. lost my arm a second time. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I got to the I got to the doctor and and he said, Mark, you know, because they let me go to the army hospital after I was I was treated perfectly and and lovely from the Sydney Hand Hospital um, in in the city there. And then after that, they sent me to the army hospital, who was doing my dressings, and I picked up an infection there. And uh, yeah, the the doctor then. Uh, didn't allow me to go back to the army hospital and uh, made me always get my dressings done in the city because I was living at Liverpool at the time um, because, yeah, I went in and saw him. I said, there's something not right because my sister's a, a nurse as well and uh, she said, Mark, your arm's not looking good and, yeah, it wasn't. And he had, he took one look at it and he said, Mark, you, 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 how fast can you get to the hospital? I need to admit you. And I said, what's wrong? Is it bad? And he goes, bad you probably will lose your arm. I'm not going to mess with you. And so we got there and I went back in the hospital for another three weeks on a trip. And, uh, but anyway, the long story short, the arm come good, but yeah, I was, I was recovering and my, my, my now wife, she got approval from her superior of a, on the long weekend to come. It was a long weekend or she just got an extra day, I think, to come and see me in Sydney from Brisbane. And we're sitting in the, uh, what bar is it? A famous bar in Sydney. 
the one that Ricky Ponting got punched out at in. I don't know. Um, I'm a, I'm a Melbourne girl, so I don't know. Okay. Yeah. But anyway, we're there and we um, we look across at the TV and uh, the, the Twin Towers are under attack. So this was 9-11. And anyway, the reason that that is, um, is noteworthy is because Nina's unit went on standby and Nina wasn't there. And the boss above Nina's boss said, where's your corporal? And her boss actually lied and said, oh, it didn't give her leave. And it was a verbal and not a written. And so it was Nina's word against her boss's word. And her, and because her boss lied and they trusted the, her superior, Nina subsequently got charged and uh, lost her promotion oh to sergeant. Oh, my goodness, Mark. And, uh, how appalling. Yeah, how appalling. And to this day, we're still upset us, but we fought it. And eventually she um, got acquitted, but it wasn't until a lot of damage was done and her career was put back at least a couple of years. But she then eventually got promoted to sergeant and it all, it all came good. But she was under a lot of stress um, and it was a terrible time and it was very unfair. And uh, I did confront her commanding officer on one of my training courses, actually. I come across him and I let him have a good piece of my mind, uh, but there's nothing really we, any of us could do at that time. So, yeah, it's uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, uh, stories there that I could go on with, but um, it all I suppose makes you who you are. Did you uh, did you ever um, bump into that guy again that balked at the door? That would have been an interesting conversation. Yeah, it would have been. It would have been. Um, but I don't even know to this day if he if he knew what he'd done or if he knew that affected the outcome. What the troops got told on that day was that I um, stuffed up and put my hands out as I was coming in to land and broke my arm, uh, which is a total fabrication to keep the troops happy, uh, where in fact it, the damage was done at the door. And it was only later that the truth had to come out through an investigation. And I had a mate who was in the investigating team. I just happened to, because I was a recruit instructor with him several years earlier. And he told me on the sly that uh, it was on account of the what happened at the door. And they're sure that it was the static line that wrapped around my wrist. But the evidence is, and I can still see it today as I talk to you and look down at my right wrist, there's a burn mark all across my wrist. And that was where the static line tore my tore the skin off of the top of my hand and uh that's where well it started and uh from after that though they changed the exit rules after my accident to make sure that one person jumped at a time no longer did you run out as a stick they called it a stick of people no longer did you run out one after the other you had to stop and jump and uh slow everything down so yeah, oh it, uh, it actually hopefully saved oh, people's lives. Good reminder never to jump, and my decisions of never to skydive are justified. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty intense, isn't it? Oh, look, I don't want to put I don't want to put people off jumping in that. I know lots of people love it. How long? How long was the rehab for that? Oh, well, see, I had to have several operations because when you transplant such a big muscle. 
onto such a small area, I looked like Popeye. And um, I had to have wait for that to heal first and then have several operations to slowly shave that muscle and that forearm down to make it look like a normal one. So I had to keep going with rehab. After that, of course, my knees went the best, my ankles went the best, and my back. Um, I could say intensively 12 months before I could get my hand back to some type of normality because it was numb and the tendons were severed from the break with the bones getting mashed up. And uh, I had tendon surgery and that, so it was really difficult. But for the first six weeks, I wasn't allowed to do anything. I just had my hand in this vice thing and I had to be, couldn't move it, couldn't sleep properly. But then, yeah, probably 12 months all up and then two years by the time the operations were finished. How long after the um, you finished the rehab did you deploy to East Timor or were you then now going to the Middle East after September 11th? Yeah, so I, I went over when it first erupted in, uh, in, in East Timor. Uh, that was in 99-2000. Yep. And then I was injured after that. Um, so I wasn't able to subsequently go back for another tour. But then I was posted uh, on promotion to Albury Wodonga in Victoria. I became an instructor of young officers, mm-hmm. uh, teaching them about logistics in the military. Mm-hmm. And then after that, I, I got posted to 6RAR, the, in, the battalion in Brisbane, the 6th Battalion. And I became their uh, transport woe warrant officer. And I uh, ran their transport and I then went back over to East Timor in 2006 as I uh, ran the battle group's transport when that criminal um, escaped from jail and started shooting people up. Uh, and I think Ramos Horta was, there was a, an assassination on him. I think, it's, I think it was him. Uh, so we went back over there to clear that up. And, uh, yeah, I, that was my last tour. I subsequently, I mean, not subsequently, I, I did have one, more, one tour before that. That was in the early 90s where I went over to the Sahara Desert for 12 months, and that was an incredible time in my life as a young soldier. Um, uh, living in the Sahara Desert um, is quite spectacular and uh, amazingly tough uh, at the same time. This is hard to describe working in such an environment, but it gave me good memories, that's for sure. Why mm. did you, you – you mentioned previously that with Nina well, – first of all, I have to ask, is, did you met Nina through the Army? Is that naughty that you were dating? Are you allowed to date? Um, well, it, it, sort of, it, it sort of is if you're in the same unit. So we, we met – Nina was a recruit instructor as well, and we were a professional there. Um, we weren't girl, girlfriend, boyfriend, or we didn't have any relationship at all. There was totally, I was, we were working in the same work area. And uh, I didn't realize until years later that she was perving at my legs when I was getting into my <laughs> PT gear. <laughs> but uh, Has she admitted that that's to you yeah, she, told me. she did. She did. She did. I had no idea. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, but uh, so... Um, what happened was we went our separate ways. I got posted to Sydney. She got posted off to Brisbane. Um, and we didn't see each other at all. And I sort of, we weren't even really friends. Um, 
but I always had a soft spot for it after working with Nina for a couple of years. Um, she was a great colleague and, and all that and always liked her. And, uh, and I think actually at the time she was in a separate relationship. It was on and off with someone else. But it wasn't. I was in East Timor the first time before my accident and uh, I was doing it pretty tough. I was, um, we were protection unit for Cosgrove. He, we were right in the middle of Dilly and we were running security for Cosgrove's headquarters. And I was, I was uh, running a small infantry section at the time and we were doing patrols around Dilly and getting bad guys and stuff. And I was at a checkpoint and this high ace came past with a bunch of medics and then someone yelled out my name and it was Nina, and I'd been in this heat. I got my flak jacket on, sweats just bobbling off me, and I, it's sort of like a haze in this. I'm doing it tough. We're, we're eating ration packs, and she comes along and reaches out of this high ace window and has this cold can of Coke unopened because the medics were doing it a bit easier, and uh, she goes, Mark, haven't seen you for years. Here, have this. You look terrible. And that was the first soft drink I had in about four weeks. And uh, it was just delightful. And anyway, we rekindled our relationship from there. Um, we had our, well, before we left East Timor, you, you can't do this now, but we were allowed to drink alcohol over there. Um, but it was on a rationing business. And you're only allowed two cans per man per day if you weren't on duty. And so we sort of stored up a little bit of our, our grog and before we left that next day, we had a, we had a party um, and we invited some of the people that, that, that helped us out. And Nina became one of our medics. And so I invited her, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, <laughs> from my uh, company uh, commander, gave me the authority to be able to do that. She came along. We had a great time. And um, she got a little bit tipsy. And my, my sergeant major, I was a sergeant at the time, he came over to me, he ribbed me with his elbow and he goes, Sergeant Valencia, you better escort this young lady back to her <laughs> barracks because I don't think she's in any condition to get back there safely <laughs> on her own. So He was your wingman. Yeah, with weapon in hand. Yes, with weapon in hand, I escorted her back to her, uh, her accommodation, which was a little way away, probably a kilometre, uh, still within the precinct um, and, you know, fairly safe, but... Anyway, she got back in there and uh, everything was fine. And I didn't see her again, you know, for probably six months later. And then we, we started getting a relationship going, a long-distance relationship, and it went from there. Oh, that's fantastic. I love hearing the stories mm. of how people met. Smiled softy in me. Yeah. You <laughs> mentioned that you and Nina had planned the farm and you'd bought it outside. Out, well, I say it's a farm, but it's three acres. Why did you choose three acres? Yep. What was about that size? I just didn't want anything too big that we couldn't manage and something also that we could afford. Um, anything over, like the five-acre lots were a little bit past our budget mm -hmm. and that's one of the main reasons why we, you know, we decided to get out, out here was is because it was a bit cheaper land and we could get a better house for the, the buck as well, mm. you know, growing family and all that. And I didn't also want to be, because I was still in the military at the time, we both thought we didn't want too much land to maintain. And uh, it works out that three acres is a really good size. You can still have enough animals, especially poultry, 
that's as many as just about as many as you'd like really as many as you'd want um you know according to laws you, you can only have i think 20 chickens or so but that's plenty for most people you know we only have about eight at the moment we've had more than that in the past but you can have a couple of other uh, livestock type animals our neighbors got horses um but yeah so it's big enough to be able to do those things but not too big would you ever move to something bigger so you could have sheep and um, a dairy cow or, or or beef cows and pigs yeah if if i won yeah. lotto yeah i would yeah if i won lotto I could, i'd like to get but i'd probably keep this place and and because just love it the way it's structured and the way it is and maybe have a separate little farm property where we could run some cattle and have some pigs and and visit that and get it maintained but yeah i don't know if that'll ever happen have you ever thought of redesigning your backyard to more of a permaculture? I know you do use some permaculture principles, but have you ever thought of fully going the permaculture route? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not keen on, on the word permaculture. I just think that it's too many rules in, in, in the whole thing. Uh, that's why I like to say self-sufficient culture uh-huh. because it's just the culture of self-sufficiency. And how you get there is up to you and how you restructure things is up to you. I know some of those principles are good and make sense. Uh, For example, um, trying to make a corridor between nature and your veggie garden and your fruit trees is a really good thing. People think it's counterintuitive because you're inviting animals to eat your fruit or eat your veggies, but it doesn't work like that. Often the birds and the animals, we have more meat-eating birds here than we do fruit-eating birds and so they keep the insects down and and nature does a better job than spraying does Uh, and once you've got it working right and so that permaculture principle I think is a good one but I'm not sure if it's if we should say it's a permaculture principle or if we just shouldn't say it's just common Mm. sense to work with nature and to use nature as much as you can like my tagline is look and see the earth through her eyes. And that's exactly how I like to garden. You also use let's get into it all the time, which I love. How did you come up with that? Yes. Oh, I just started saying it. Um, But it's not exclusive to me. A lot of people say it, but I just adopted it as my own um, because it's just a good way of of sort of cutting to that next and getting a bit of excitement and and, that, and, and finishing off with um, sometimes or most of the time a different way of giving a thumbs up in my videos is something that people like too now. Mm-hmm. And if I forget to give to say something about giving a thumbs up, people go in the comment section and make their own up or say, where was your thumbs up? And uh, they look forward to those types of uh, just funny idiosyncrasies or common things and themes that you have in your videos. Um, the subscribers base and you know i'm not sure if i like calling them fan base because i don't feel like uh that i'm any celebrity or anything like that but so people that are interested enough to subscribe in me 99 percent of them are just so adorable you just wouldn't believe it the comments that i i get underneath my videos are just incredible and the knowledge they have i learn all the time from them and i feel very lucky indeed that so many people want to follow me. How do you deal with the the trolls? Because I'm sure that you probably, I mean, everyone's going to have them. Everyone 
there's got to be that one person out there that's painful. How do you deal with them? Yeah. There's probably, yeah, that 1%. Um, I used to get a bit angry at it um, and, I, and I used to reply to them. But then a lot of the, the my subscriber base, there's plenty of them used to start rebutting that and saying that I'd get emails even. So they'd go out of their way to email me, find out my email address, go through my website and say, Mark, you replied to that guy who was a nasty person. Why did you do that? You know, don't be replying to people. Just ignore them. And so it took me a while to do that and to start ignoring them and it was a, it was a better way to go because, you know, yeah, I try to read all the comments that I get, which is, you know, sometimes thousands in a month. And uh, sometimes it's those nasty comments. It's, they're the ones that stand out and stick with you. Mm. But yet they shouldn't. They shouldn't. You should. It should be a, a weighing up game. If 99% are saying you've done a good job and they like what you do and they're positive, why are you letting 1%? They're the, they're the weird ones. They're the, they're the nasty people who don't deserve, you know, your your comment back or your time. And then I found that because I'm getting so many comments and I just don't have the time now to even answer all the good people, uh, I don't have time at all to hardly read or or stick with negative comments. I just don't think of them much anymore at all. And I certainly don't answer them because I, I have, if, if I have to answer someone that's negative or a nasty troll, that means I'm taking someone else that's a really great person, uh, uh, giving giving them a comment back or acknowledging the lovely things that they've said or the knowledge that they've shared underneath one of my videos. If someone wanted to go the more self-sufficient route, and I know that you acknowledge that you're not self-sufficient in everything. Um, I read one of yeah. your um, posts on your website talking about the flower at supermarkets. <laughs> With the sizing, with the um, oh yeah, oh my goodness, <laughs> I agree with you on that one. Actually, the issues yeah. that they're having in regards to the restrictions with Corona. Yeah. But um, what would you recommend in terms of if someone was to start a self-sufficient lifestyle? Where would you recommend that they actually start? That they've got the funds to buy the land, though. Yeah. Okay. Just start small, and uh, and empire build mm. as you get used to it. So don't buy 20 chickens. I, I had a guy email me the other day and he was asking for advice. He said, I'm really interested in getting into chickens. doesn't have even laying chickens at the moment, but he wants to get into broilers. He wants to get meat chickens. And he said, I'm thinking about getting 50. Uh, you think that's a good number? And I just quickly emailed back and I said, look, you haven't kept chickens before. Don't buy 50 because there's a lot to it. There's a lot more than you think. Uh, you've got to house them properly, you've got to understand the needs and the spacing needs and you've got to understand how to process them if you're going to use them for food. Mm. And that's not a nice thing to do. Some people don't understand that that, that can be quite difficult at the end of the, the, the growing period. Um, so I would recommend people start off very small, a few chickens instead of 10 or so because that'll still give you a couple of eggs a day um, with these great laying breeds that we've got now and a small veggie garden, a couple of raised beds or just in ground to start off with and just see how you go from there. Mm. You'd be surprised at how much you can grow in a small space. I'm, I'm, I'm reverting a lot back to small space gardening. In fact, I'm building on an area at the back of my shed to do a mock 
type of area where I can grow things in containers because a large number of my subscribers uh, live in small spaces. What's the direction of your channel going to go in now? Now that you've grown it, do you have, I know you've started a second one just because obviously you have too much time on your hands. (laughs) Yeah. No, well, what what the intent is for that second one is to um, branch that out into other realms of self-sufficiency, but also have it more raw, uh, uh, rawer than anything I put on my first channel. My first channel, like you were talking about earlier, about structured videos, they tend to be uh, a, a lot better as far as um, earning potentials go and longevity on YouTube. You can structure a video, you can make a how-to, and my subscriber base might not necessarily um, be all over it. I could get 10% of my subscriber base that watch that video, but then the other 90% is coming from outside of YouTube, people that don't subscribe to me, but that does well in search search engine results. YouTube picks it up, runs with it, and that's those type of opal videos, the opal in the potch videos, I call. Uh, when you find them, you know, they're, they're little pots of gold that do really well. The, the problem is that, you know, like I was saying earlier, you shouldn't be going trying to chase those videos all the time either. But uh, I, which I don't try to chase hit videos, but I want to still make informative videos and structured videos as much as possible. But then, how do I get around doing the the everyday videos, which a large percentage of my subscriber base still really like to see the behind the scenes stuff that doesn't interest a lot of people, but interests the real hardcore fans that really do like my stuff and want to see more. And I get those emails every day can you do more videos can you do just i don't care just walk around the garden and just show us what you've got and i and i explained that i can't really do those long protracted videos of me um and ah and all the way through uh, even though you like them the majority of people get bored and just click off them um and it shows and, and the more people just click off them the more youtube thinks well maybe people aren't interested in you anymore mark so we won't show any more people or as many people your videos. Is that how the algorithm works? So if they if they don't watch for a certain period roughly, of time? Roughly, yes. Everything, for, I can tell you now from a creator's point of view behind the scenes, um, what video hits is not necessarily an important thing. What's most important to me is watch time. How long does someone watch my videos for? That's the most important indicator that you can have as a creator on YouTube. It's not necessarily video hits. A lot of people think that video hits is the thing. It's not because you can get a lot of hits on a video if you can do a smart thumbnail and and a fancy introduction. But then if people click off and it's not what they were looking for, uh, YouTube will punish you for that. Mm. Yeah. Um, so starting the second channel gives me more leeway. It lets me um, it gives me that chance to try something different, experiment put a long, longer videos, long garden walk arounds. And uh, that is seems that seems to be working. And I also want to get into other things like fishing, for example, on the second channel and branch out a bit and do other things that I'm doing that cross over into my gardening, catching fish and then using the fish frames in the garden as fertilizer. And so that's what that second channel is about. Is that why I bought a boat? 
<laughs> I bought a yeah, little tinny, yes. That's a, a leaking tinny. A leaking one. Oh, my God. I laugh when you were saying, I don't need the fishing rod holder because I, I bought a boat in your last video. And I was like, oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> Love the yeah, dad jokes. Yeah. yeah. It's only, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's only a little leaking tinny. Love it. Mm. Have you ever thought of doing any um, paid webinars or tutorials or anything like that from a revenue point of view? I have thought about the tutorial road. I'm too busy for that at the moment. I'm just still trying to uh, get through affiliatization things and um, sponsorship things and uh, my videos and writing. I'd like to do more writing, mm-hmm. but I, I, I just haven't had the chance to do that. Um, I've done a few YouTube guest appearances, if I can put that in inverted mm-hmm. commas, um, and I've gone to functions where I've been a speaker. Uh, I do that. I went down to Google in Sydney last year with Nina, and we talked at oh, – we didn't talk, but we went there as I, uh, on an invite, um, an appearance thing, which is very nice, and I talked at the Powerhouse in Brisbane. That was great. I really had a good time talking there and a few other venues around Brisbane. But I do. I don't do that for for money. I just like to. Um, I don't know. Uh, you know, not everything should be done for coin. I wrote an article the other day for it's my home magazine, and they actually gave me a gift card. I didn't expect for fifty dollars, but uh, that is still publicity for me. But it's also just giving a little bit back because I feel like I'm quite lucky at the moment with people supporting me. I sometimes wonder if I deserve it, but deserve um, it. people support me nevertheless. And I, I really, I just don't think, you know, I should be trying to charge left, right and centre for anything, I, everything I do. You also need to make a living though, Mark. And how, for sponsorships, sure. how do people find you if they want you to sponsor a product or? Well, at the moment, it's just by emailing me and I do it myself. I don't have a manager or, or I don't go through any type of, um, uh, what do they call them, talent agencies. I don't, I don't, I'm not affiliated with any of them. And is that, do they get that through your website, self-sufficient? That's right, website? yeah. Yeah, they can contact me at mark at selfsufficientme.com. Mm-hmm. That's my email. Okay, I'll put that. Do you want me to put that mm. in the um, notes? You can if you want, yeah, or they can just go to my contact page on my website. That's okay. fine. Fantastic. Well, thank you so mm. much, Mark. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Thank you, Fiona. Okay. That has been a pleasure speaking with you as well. I mean, it's just great. I, I really hope your podcast um, keeps going well because I've enjoyed listening. You know, I've, I actually scrolled through all your episodes so far and I think it's really interesting uh, how, you know, the structure of your podcasts and how and the, the way you structure your questions. I just think that um, I'm definitely a subscriber. Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them. 